Hi, this is Amanda Dolan and welcome to The Mental Society. Today we are joined by Susan Emilian, an attorney, award-winning author, motivational speaker, and nationally recognized expert who has advocated to end violence um, against women for the past 40 years. With the death of her 19-year-old niece, Maggie, who was shot and killed in October of 1999 by her ex-boyfriend, Susan's work became that much more personal. Susan is the originator and facilitator of My Avenging Angel workshops that are based on the idea of living well is the best revenge. Uh, she's helped hundreds of women who have experienced domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse take the journey from victim to survivor to, survivor to thriver. Um, Susan's books include a trilogy of self-help workbooks that are called In the Thrivers Zone, it's that series name. And then she has novels, the Best Revenge series that were inspired by her niece's story. Um, and then Susan has also led groups for male um, domestic violence offenders as well. And she's presented um, her work at national and international conferences. So that was a lot. Susan, thank <laughs> you so much for joining me today. Um, thank you. I wanted to just start with, what what is domestic violence? So domestic violence is one of those terms, and it took a while for us to come up with it, because when I first started doing this work, we didn't have that word. If anything, we had battered women. There was a perception that women were in some kind of relationships, usually wives, um, and that they had they were in a domestic situation and there was violence. Um, and we'll talk, I'll talk in a minute about the different kinds of violence that can happen, but it's in that domestic circle. Uh, and sometimes that extends to the children of the women. Uh, it also can extend to men, um, particularly men who might be the victims of the violence, but also men who are perpetrators who may have a trauma history. Um, sometimes it's also associated with child abuse, although usually that's a separate category. But many of the women I've worked with who are present as domestic violence survivors or victims and now survivors, um, they have a history, a trauma history. So there's usually um, sexual assault, um, maybe as, as a teenager or younger, child abuse um, and other kinds of trauma. So, but domestic violence has become the term that generally talks about uh, violence which, within a relationship. Um, it can be both heterosexual and homosexual relationships. And it begins to, um, and not just in marriages, it's certainly uh, extended to um, even people who are dating, not necessarily even cohabitating in a relationship. What um, many years ago, um, although for me it's about 40 years, um, a program out of uh, Duluth, um, Minnesota, put together what's called the power and control wheel. And it really begins to make people understand that there's many levels to the kind of domestic violence. If you look at that wheel, the outside is physical violence, hitting, shoving, strangulation these days has become a separate crime. And not just sort of strangling, but putting your hands on the neck. This is very, a very vulnerable area. And um, using guns or knives or that kind of, you know, and, but also physical intimidation. Then you move into the circle and it begins to talk about more psychological and what sometimes people call verbal abuse, emotional abuse, 
Um, uh, and today we have a word that's been coming into the, the vernacular much more recently is coercive control, which really talks about the kind of manipulation. And sometimes it's not accompanied with any physical violence sometimes, but it has the component that if you don't do what I want you to do, um, there will be physical consequences to it. And sometimes those consequences are acted upon and sometimes it's just kind of this thing out there. So in many relationships, um, the idea that domestic violence has to be physical violence is not necessarily true, um, or that it leads up from one to the other. In my niece's situation, Maggie, uh, who was a 19-year-old college student, he never physically assaulted her before he killed her. So in some ways, not that Maggie missed that warning sign, but it wasn't the danger kind of thing that people right. think about. And certainly she didn't have bruises or or you know uh, anything on her body that would go if she went to the police or that situation, the campus police. They're like, well, you know, it, it, that can't be so bad. How, however, people even in those professions perceive the danger. So um, what's also clear is that um, sometimes there's sexual violence that's mixed together with domestic violence. So either coercive sex in a relationship. Or that, or denying sex because you won't do the other thing over here. Um, so together, that ability for a person—and I'm going to talk mostly about women—to be able to get out of that relationship, um, those are the kinds of things that hold her there. Not so much that she will put, she wants to put up with the violence, but she's not sure if she leaves, will there be even more violence, right. not only towards her or somebody else, including someone who tries to help her, like her mother or her another parent or her brother or or a neighbor or somebody. So that's really that that whole bubble of violence sort of goes around that relationship and the ability for her to move out of it. Um, so I think that's what many people today have. And I think to give language, because we didn't have language for this. So a lot of women would say, well, you know, he's, he only like, you know, yells at me, he doesn't really, you know, hit me. Well, that is maybe true, but there's also, there may be a progression to that kind of violence. Right. And in the most vulnerable time is when you do choose to leave, because you don't know what he's going to do next. And for a person who's into power and control, to start to lose power and control, that may be the moment where it becomes not just verbal or psychological or coercive, but it definitely moves into physical violence and not just hitting or striking, but with guns or knives or really attempting to kill you. And sometimes in front of a person like a child, um, which is even more trauma. So that I think that we're working more and more to define that in such a way that everybody has the same definition and that women, and particularly young women, um, who are going into relationships the first time, right. can have some words for this. And when they do want to report it, they have words for it, uh, and that's really important. And I think, you know, you made that point of it's not always physical harm right. that is part of that domestic violence piece, because domestic violence seems, in a lot of ways, about control, especially when we look at those yeah. other. Um, you know, the financial abuse, the, um, or that, you know, if you leave me, I'll, I'll kill myself. Is that, that right. coercive? Right, kind of right. That's the, def that's manipulation. And it's an emotional manipulation because that person you've engaged, and usually, you know, they talk about 
I'll talk about those as men. Um, it's kind of the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, and the women. You love that part of them that is loving and kind and 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 connects with you. But that other part of them that you can't control, you don't even know that when that person might come out. Um, that it's that attempt to figure out, and then uh, what women talk about is living on eggshells. You know, mm -hmm. will I do something that will keep us on this equilibrium? Or will that the eggshells start to, and then it's going to go boom. So, right. you know, the classic example is he comes home from work and there's no dinner on the table and that's the woman's responsibility. And then it's like all hell broke. So, so those kind of, those kind of moments where everything's a little bit shaky mm -hmm. is and the I control. Think, and I think too, I, you know, what I remember studying when I was in graduate school and I've seen too, is there's that cycle, right? Where it's, mm -hmm. yeah. you get abused. And then there's this honeymoon. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I love you. I'll never do it again. Here are flowers. Here's gifts. Let me do all these things for you. And then it starts to build up again. And then there's a violence period. Right. And each one of those section like pieces could take a day, an hour right. or a year. Right. We don't, right. Like, there's no and, set. Yeah, and sometimes it, it escalates pretty fast once the pattern is set. You know, when I, when I used to do, domestic violence offender groups with men and also with women, but more so with men. Um, it was always fascinating because that's one of the curriculum pieces we teach is the cycle of violence. And we'd start with, you know, you have, you, you are doing really well and then you have a little argument and then it, you know, kind of gets a little heated and then like boom, something happens and the cop are showing up and whatever. And then you could exit there and say, okay, that's it. Or you can go back and say, I'm sorry, me and the candy and flowers and, and then the honeymoon period. And then there's another time and, you know, you talk about in every, any relationship, there's always conflict. There's always something you're not, you're not completely the same person, but how do you manage that and try to teach the men in this case to some communication skills. What I found so fascinating about this, this, this lesson, every time, almost every time I did it, and I did these groups for 15 years, probably five or six groups a week. Oh, wow. Is that the men are like, wow, there's a cycle. <laughs> it's like, wow, I've been going around that cycle for like not just this relationship that I got arrested for, but this other one, this other one. And then they can also go back to their parents and say, you know, my mom right. and dad did that thing around the circle. And then they're kind of interested in, you know, what they'd have to do to get off the cycle. But that's the hard part because that's about communication and active listening and taking your time out. And some of the guys would, you know, it's a behavioral change, but for some of the guys, their level of anger and their ability to calm themselves down in that moment is so, um, it is so limited. It's just not, you know, because right. men are, men are socialized in our society to express one emotion and that's anger. Yes. Whether it's underneath it, whether it's underneath it is hurt and sad and embarrassment, who cares? We're just going to go to anger. And well, then anger can usually escalate. I think anger, anger is often the presentation of another emotion. Oh, absolutely. We don't absolutely. feel like we can, we don't want to be vulnerable with that emotion. Right. They'll say to me, well, you know, if I show a hurt, then she's going to like use that against me. And that's it. Yeah, like, then, then I'm not. But, right. And, and, that, and then you're out, of your, you're out of your man box and, oh my God, we can't do that. Um, and for some, you know, because they've they've watched their parents or their grandparents right. do this generationally, they can see that there's, you know, they know where it's going to go. Um, but the idea that they have to make that change seems so monumental to them. Or that I say to them, you know, you can act that way, 
and she will she may do what you want her to do but you're not going to get love out of that so if you're looking for a loving relationship i don't think you got there yet and that's really for men particularly men in in you know in circumstances where they don't see the rest of the world around them going to change they're going to be now the outlier in their community or in their culture um that's a really difficult change to make i, I think you know anything i one of the things when I talk about, especially repeated trauma with people that I've worked with, it's kind of like a river, right? Like you get, you know, you, the river flows and it's used to flowing. So it keeps going that way. And it's easy to stay in that, mm-hmm. you know, that cycle. And to divert that water, it takes effort and energy because even if you build a little dam, it still wants to go back the way that it's gone before because right. that's what it knows. Right. Right. And I think that those domestic violence, you know, relationships. I've noticed that both the men and women often come from a place of trauma in some place. Yeah, it it depends. I mean, for many of the men that I worked with uh, over the 15 years, if you ask them what their childhood was like, they would usually talk about witnessing domestic violence or being abused themselves as children. Um, and so that that was probably they, they come with trauma histories, but they also do want to break the cycle um, and they can see it generationally and what whatever that you know, what their parents were like. Um, but they also don't, you know, I mean, I'd say things like and I know this is my own personal life. Relationships are hard. You know, they're, it's not yeah. easy. We're, you know, if, if, if you were both exactly the same, you probably wouldn't be attracted to each other. So the, so this is some basic communication. It also is about you allowing that communication to happen without you going off into anger land or whatever you do and whatever you think is the role of men. And we socialize men in many ways in our society in this really crazy way. And then we expect them to go against their socialization to be gentle, kind people. And boy, you have to work hard to do that. Um, So, so men are, you know, working on it. And, um, and the idea that there's a place where they can find those kind of relationships and not only in heterosexual, but I find the same thing in, in lesbian and gay relationships that there usually is that same pattern that's, that's continued. And sometimes it's different than your parents, but, but many times it's, it's the role modeling. When I asked, when I asked the men about, you know, do they have a, a strong male role model in their life? They usually say no, or if they do have one, it's somebody who was also violent. So even trying to find those role models um, is, is difficult. Well, and that makes sense, especially when you look to older generations because yep. of the way, you know, that that we were taught. I mean, even, yeah. you know, my my generation, I think like with my kids who are teenagers, it's starting to shift, right? It's more acceptable, still not all the way there. I mean, I right. I hear my 13, almost 14-year-old, you know, you need to man up. I've heard yep. his football coaches, you know, say things like that and and for me as a parent I'm like how about okay well one what does it mean to be a man right like what and is that's it? and that's that little man box that we put men mm-hmm. into and, and, and women have a box too yeah. and although the culture with women is still women are in a box and they're supposed to be nurturing and be moms and have the dinner on right. the table and there's still men who believe that um, and the, and the, that belief is reinforced by a number of things in their culture. So, and, and then particularly, I 
you know, working with immigrant men and women, they have this idea of what the old country is like, and it's not like America. So all those things just constantly challenge the ability. And today, because people get arrested more for domestic violence, generally physical violence, although sometimes the men I work with were not in the those felony kind of situations, physical violence, but, you know, breach of peace and whatever. So they need to deal with the fact that they are now in the criminal justice system and for things they think shouldn't be a crime, but they are, they are affecting themselves, their relationship and their children and who knows who else is in the realm. So, so it is a social issue that needs to be dealt with and it's, it's not, it's not acceptable. It's it's becoming less acceptable than it was, but it still has the, the idea that what's the, what's the big deal about this? And so we had a little argument. Yeah, I know that a lot of states have moved away from, you know, if the police are called out and someone is injured, charges will be filed and it's not up to the victim. Right. Man- mandatory arrest. Yes. Um, yes. In many states. And, and, and I think. That there's benefits to that, right? Of the the victim is no longer put in the position of like, oh, he, you know, I don't want to upset him by filing these right. charges. But also I wonder, does that make people less likely to call because they want de-escalation, but not someone to go to, right. to jail? Right. That's true. And that's how women get sort of pulled back into it. The other thing that has happened a lot in the state where I live is that the police would they were under a mandated arrest, um, which is which which was a sort of uh, perpetuated or uh, or uh, it, it became part of the law because of a particular case here in Connecticut a number of years ago where the woman what he wasn't arrested and he while the police were there he actually physically assaulted her in this really horrible way, um, but in any case what sometimes happens is the police arrest both parties. Because, you know, I can't figure out what's going on here, so I'm just right. going to send them both to jail. Well, that, you know, makes sense in the moment, perhaps, of that particular cop. But first of all, it doesn't give the judge a lot of information. Like, you were there when this was going on. You know, you should be able to give an idea. Right. But it also then starts to penalize women, in particular, who are now become victims. And not only that, they have a criminal record, and they lose jobs, and they lose the ability to move forward with their lives. So it's So there's also been some work with the within the criminal justice system to sort of weigh that out and to not allow those those kinds of so what the the police officer is then asked to do he or she is asked to figure out if they can in that moment who the primary perpetrator is and sometimes a little bit difficult if you know i have women who told me women victims have told me you know i i'm the one standing here with a bat in my hand because i know he's given me the look and that look means that he's going to hit me. So I'm defending myself. And the cop shows up and she's got a bat in her hand and he's standing there going, I don't know why she's so upset. And they arrest her. So it's complicated, but at least there's more recognition by the police and the criminal justice system that these are crimes and not just things that happen in a family and OG. They've got to figure it out. Now, I I worked with... Um, a police department here when I was in graduate school as an intern. Um, and one of the things I worked with victims of domestic violence. And one thing that that a lot of the police officers 
that I came into contact with said that they hated going into domestic violence yeah. situations. The, mo the most dangerous kind of call a cop can can deal with. Absolutely. And, and I think what it is there, one, there's emotions are high. There's a lot going mm -hmm. on often, right? It's in your home and you want to protect your home. But because there's such a bond between the partners, it's possible for the victim to be upset with the police officer, right? right. That's because yeah, but she'll problem. usually say something like, can't you just get him to stop? You know, that's all I, I need him to stop. Just tell him to stop and then you can go away. I don't want him arrested. Just tell him to stop. And that usually is not, particularly if this is going on in front of the police officer who now has, has a witness to it and has right. probable cause to arrest. And then it's sort of like, then you're right, that bond starts to, and then she realizes if he leaves and he goes to jail, and particularly if he can't post bond, then she can't put food on the table for the kids. And, right. and it just sort of begins to spiral out of control. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when women especially are, you know, we earn less if we're the ones that are staying home and mm -hmm. taking care of the family, because, you know, we've decided as a family, someone wants, we want someone to stay home with the kids. If you don't have the resources to get out, it's virtually, I feel like it could be virtually impossible. Right. And that's why women stay. Um, and not because they want to be beaten and subjected to all that. Um, or that they, maybe they, and not so much they want to stay and have that happen, but they feel it's their fault and they should figure out some way to make it better and not have to leave. But there, I was reading a couple of studies recently about, about this question of why don't people, women leave? Um, and um, one of them says that uh, money is a major issue why women stay and why they don't leave. Um, and that some women in this in, in this particular study said they let they they stayed in the relationship for as long as up to two years because they couldn't get out because they didn't have the money. Now, in most domestic violence, even if there's not physical violence, mm -hmm. two years is like a 10 minutes is a death sentence. It, I mean, I just can't imagine staying for two years, but to the, because of the financial part, either to get out in, you know, they don't have a good car, they don't have, they're only working part-time because they won't let, because he won't let them work full-time, so they haven't let, or they don't have first month's rent and security deposits. So to stay means that it's an economic issue more than anything. And, you know, with that, I, I was actually talking with a friend earlier and we have someone in common who she has um, five children and her husband um, gives her a hundred dollars a week mm. and she has to make the household run on a hundred dollars a week. She has no credit card, nothing. And right. so how would that, how would she leave? She has five children. She's not been allowed to work and she's given a hundred dollars a she week. Can't. So they say that, Statistically, and I don't know this is a major research project or not, but the 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 it takes seven to eight times to have a woman leave. Yes. But if if money is the issue, it may take as many as thirty times to leave. Wow! So that increases the possibility. Although even if he's not physically violent in the relationship as such, um, that leaving a controlling person in a relationship that's controlling, you don't know that he will not take that next step. And that vulnerability, and, and I, you know, women always say this to me, I, you know, I think I know better than anybody what's going to happen or how he might react. 
um, and that moment means that they do stay for two years and they may never leave. Um, and there may be other circumstances that happen that that change that that move the relationship in a different place. But the idea that women are trapped there is not because they want to stay and get beaten or to have their children exposed to it. But that manipulation is so some of these guys are so good at that manipulation. And if they have a narcissistic, um, you know, personality, it's not a behavioral change. It's these guys are never going to change. So the idea of how you leave and how you leave safely and how you survive, because they will always be in your children's life in some way, shape or form. So to, to manage all of that, and to be um, and to move forward is really some of the work that I've been doing, and how to get women to see themselves as not yeah. just victims but also survivors. And so, like once you know you once a woman has left that domestic violence situation, they've moved on, and now they are surviving, mm-hmm. right? But to get to that next level, right? There's one. It's one way to just going to work, coming home food on the table, going to sleep, right? So what does it take to move from that just surviving to truly thriving at life? Well, I think it's it's individual to many of the women. I What I found when I started doing these workshops that I just kind of made up, <laughs> I don't have to say that. I'm, I'm an attorney, I'm not a clinician, although I didn't see myself doing clinical work. And in some way, I felt like I was on my own journey after my niece was murdered. I didn't want to get stuck in my anger. He did kill himself, um, which gave us the, I guess, for lack of a better word, the opportunity to move on without being pulled back into that into that criminal case. And I but, wonder if that did I wonder if I in the same situation would be angry that he doesn't get punished. Well, or- that's the thing that I got stuck on too. Or as I said, I think so for me it was like particularly as a person, although I've never worked in the in the in criminal law, I've always I before Maggie was killed and I when I practiced law, I was doing divorces with women who were domestic violence victims. I had done uh, landlord tenant law, I worked for a legal aid program. So um but you know the idea and I knew a number of people before Maggie was killed who were homicide survivors. I had worked a bit um on some on some death penalty issues in in the state where I live in. So I you know understood there were people who were survivors of homicide who really needed that closure, that so-called closure, and to have that person die, um, and, and at least to be incarcerated for the rest of their life. But I think what I learned about this process is that there is a journey, and we are going to take a journey. And for many of the women that I work with, particularly women who've had incredible trauma histories before even domestic violence is a presenting problem, they've actually had many things happen to them before that, and some some have been resolved and some not, um, even even in a clinical way. Um, that they don't even see they're on a journey. That and they see their life as basically I've been a victim of this and a victim of that and a victim of this when I was younger and older and I'll probably be a victim. And so they didn't see that they were on a journey. And when I first started working in the in this field, uh, I started a sexual assault crisis service before I went to law school, and then after I worked with women who we're getting divorces who were domestic violence victims. And I've done some work on sexual harassment uh, in the workplace. So I had this general idea of, you know, we try to get justice and we move through it. But when Maggie was killed, to me, the revenge was not so much against somebody or something um, because he had, he had killed himself. Um, But to see that, you know, 
um, I needed to get some kind of revenge or to avenge her death because that was just not fair. So, you know, like anybody else in the world these days, I Googled the word revenge and I got living well is the best revenge. And that really sort of struck me as what I wanted to do, that I didn't want to get, you know, he was not going to get me stuck in my anger and focus and focus and focus about what he did or didn't do or why he did it or um, and what happened to Maggie and how it happened. And so and also because I had done this work before Maggie was killed with victims, I knew that I couldn't go back to doing that work, that it was too hard for me to do that work. Every woman in the shelter was Maggie. And I had enough guilt about, you know, I should have been able to help Maggie and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I really felt like I was on my own journey to get myself beyond just surviving what happened to my niece. And I wanted to be more than a homicide survivor. I wanted to thrive. And I just started to, I guess, develop that idea that we're all on a journey and that every part of that struggle there's a transformation in that moment. And, you know, years later, I've recently come upon some research that talks about post-traumatic growth, that even though you come through trauma, there's an opportunity for you to grow. I just I describe it as simple as sometimes bad things, really bad things happen, and you can make something good come out of it. And that's really what I wanted to do. That was going to be the thing that would avenge it the best, because there's, you know, he destroyed my niece. He's not going to destroy my family or me. Right. Um, I'm going to make something good come out of this. So as as Maggie didn't have in that moment of her death, when she, you know, didn't know he had a gun until he presented it and, and killed her, um, that in that moment that she couldn't move on. So I wanted to help other women who could. And um, that really was my credential more than anything in presenting myself to do this workshop to say, I, I'm on my own journey. This is how I'm beginning to think about it. And I picked up on the word thriver, which at the time, 20 years ago, not many people were using that word. Uh, and so many people for many years didn't know what I was talking about. But if they took my workshop and I started to, I have a series of exercises. And one of them is we do, um, we talk about stories uh, from our childhood and we go through every story has a struggle. Every story has a transformational moment. Cinderella goes through the death of her mother and the fairy, the, the, uh, the, the, the cruel and wicked stepmother. And then the fairy godmother shows up, transformation, and she has a happy ending. Um, and she finds unconditional love. So that's the story we tell over and over and over again. We all live that story. And the, what we need to do is get to, I call it the happy ending because I'm a fairy tale kind of person, but the idea that something good will come out that, you know, that, and, and where we have not been able to do that. And for many of the women in my, who come into my program, they uh, have these limiting beliefs about themselves, which are not unusual. Um, bad things always happen to me. Abuse has always been part of my life. It'll never change. I'll never figure out who I am when I grow up. Uh, I can't create, I don't take any risk. Life is too scary. And so we start to break down that process. And I think that's the movement from survivor to thriver. The other piece of it is, and I didn't realize until one of the women actually articulated this to me after coming through my workshop, there's a part of us that's been untouched by all that's ever happened to us. Some people have spiritual words for that, like the spirit of the soul or the divine. Some of us have other words that I call it thriver, I call it the happy person inside. And in that process of going through whatever we've gone through in our life, sometimes that part of us gets kind of trounced on and, and particularly if you're in a controlling relationship, 
you ain't going to show that part of yourself that often, but no. it's not going to be understood. And who cares about that? So the idea that you can bring that part up again, you know, play with it for a while and figure out and then take that part of you, that energy, that strong, um, that strong need. I call it sometimes I call it the real you, the authentic part of you and take that out for a spin and see where it can go. What I learned in that process is that we all have some values that are in that that uh, part of us is untouched, the spirit, the, the the soul, spirit, whatever you call it. And for me, that's meaningful work. I've always, all the work I've ever done in my life has been, has to be meaningful. When I finished law school, it was not, it was very clear to me that I wasn't going to go work in corporate law. I was going to go work at a legal aid program and help people. So once I figured out that these workshops were now meaningful work for me, once again in my life, and that nothing that happened to my knees destroyed that need, I could I could make this something and make it become that I was living well, despite what happened to her. Do I still miss her? Do I still wish she was here? I think she'd love to do this work um, because she had that same aspiration in her life to do good for people. She wanted to be a lawyer, too. She would talk to me about my cases sometimes and just be interested in how I was moving people's lives forward. So I, that's when I give that to the women, that's why I call the workshop My Avenging Angel Workshop. Living Well is the Best Revenge. And they really, over the course of the 20 years, because I have a workshop that I do, but it's also a follow-up program. So if they do the two days of the workshop, they can join a monthly program, oh, that wow. sort of mentoring program. So I've had seen some of these women and their children for 15, 20 years. And so I've seen them move through um, and done things that I don't even know that I could have done. Um, but I know that what I have done has inspired them and then we keep sort of building. So survivor to thriver to me means that taking that next step and and hopefully never going back to that victimization. Or if you do, or there's a situation where you feel victimized, then staying there for a couple of hours, maybe. You right, know, you know how but, to get out of it. But not two years or the rest of your life, you know. Um, and I think that's what is missing right now, not only in the domestic violence, sexual assault movement. I think COVID's taught us a lot about this, mm -hmm. about the process of healing, the process of, you know, it's a it's a journey. And for some people, that journey has been made more difficult, not only by their own um, their own condition of getting COVID, but their parents have died and their, you know, their children have died and their friends have died. And so we're all kind of on this healing kind of thing yes. and we're all on the same journey. And how do we inform each other of that and, and role model it for each other is really important. And I think, you know, that is that piece, that role modeling piece, because if we haven't been taught by our family of origin, by the people mm -hmm. around us, what communication looks like, the good communication, how to yeah. listen actively. So many of us, and I'm sure you've experienced this, we start to think of how we're going to respond. Mm -hmm. And oh, if yeah. someone else starts talking, instead of like, okay, I'm going to hear what you have to say, right. and then I'm going to process it and speak. <laughs> because we feel like we have to one-up people all the time yeah. or... And I mean, I think silence is uncomfortable. Like nobody wants to. to right. Well, yeah, right. The other thing that I found out in doing the men's offenders group, male offenders group, is is the guys would get like um, we do and we do communication stuff, you know, and we do active listening, and they're like, 
okay, so how long do we have to listen to her? <laughs> and I would explain to them, you know, I, did you ever figure this out? But men are socialized. Well, I said women are socialized to use their words. So yes, we are talkers, and because we don't have the physicality that you guys have. So I have I learned at a very young age, although it wasn't like a lesson that was set me down, but that I will talk myself out of situations, and I have done that. I've never been in a dangerous situation, but I figured out how to talk myself. So yes, women are going to be able to do that better than men. And they're like, well, she keeps repeating the same thing. I'm like, yes. She's going to do that for a while. That's her process. And then she'll probably talk about it more emotionally than you will because men aren't allowed to show their feelings. But you could figure out a way, forget the rest of the world and who says what, you know, that if you really love this person and she loves you, you can figure out a way to communicate. But that's just not a normal pattern for most of the way. And and I don't think it's, you know, we we teach a lot about, we show a lot of examples about the courtship and how people get together and isn't that cool. And you see very little in the movies and TV about relationships that actually move through well, some really difficult times. Like Cinderella, the story mm -hmm. ends when they get married. All the, all the fairy tales do. All the romance novels end with, um, uh, there's, I'm a big, like, right. Well, and just that, you know, somehow they, they find each other. I remember, um, I'm a big Jane Austen fan because I'm a, a writer. And I remember there's a couple of people that have attempted over the years, you know, she wrote back in England in the in the 1700s to write the next chapter of the book, you know, when they're in a the marriage and what happens. And you read that and it's sort of like, oh, this feels really funny. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what to do with this, you know. You know, did Jane, did Jane have written them like this? I don't know. But yeah, it's... There's not a lot of, you know, there are a few movies and TV shows that might show that, but there's not a lot of role modeling about that. Well, and, you know, I, like, I think about that, too. I wonder if part of that is because in real life, we don't see how people's relationships oh, play that's out behind true. closed doors. Yes. That's what, sorry, I was just thinking about that was yeah. you were speaking. No, I, I, my parents never fought in, in public. They were married for many, many years. Um, and I, I, you know, they're both past now and I, I'm kind of curious, like, how did they work that out? Like, you know, did that, when they had the conversations behind closed door, like, was my mother really assertive? Was my mom, I mean, I just wanted, you know, I didn't, and that's something I never learned from my parents. I learned how to keep it calm and to, you know, and there were times we could feel the tension in the, in the house a little bit, you know, mom and dad are not agreeing on something, but it was always in the back room, which was a great thing for me as a child to see that, you know, things get worked up, but boy, I'd love to know how that happened. <laughs> I, yes. And, you know, I grew up similarly that my parents did not fight in front of us and my parents separated for a, a period of time and then stayed married. Um, but I know that when I was 11 years old and my parents separated, I'd never seen them fight. I'd never seen them have like disagreements. They always seemed on the same page, I was like, this is so, why? I don't understand. Because, <laughs> like, you all seem to have it all figured out. Um, and looking back, I, you know, I see that there were, right, like, hindsight's twenty twenty. Like, I can look back and say, oh, okay, these were other things that were going on, and, right. and it makes more sense right. now. Um, and so, yeah, I, it's it's an interesting point. I never thought of that. We don't see the after, like you see the happily ever after, but really like happily ever after what? And I wonder too, if, like that's what we all think we're supposed to have. Right. right? Well, and I, and I think it's it's also it's, it's defined by culture too. 
they're in particularly in different countries. A lot of the men that I worked with, not all of them, but we're from different countries and they were like, you know, in so-and-so country, we can hit her, we can spank our kids and no one's going to, you know, call DCF on us. And it's like, yeah, that's true. And in in that country, that's true, but not in this country. Um, and, and as the law has evolved in this country, there are things that, you know, men would not, or people would not get arrested for. That's the issue of strangulation. It, it didn't be, it wasn't a separate crime. Um, and, but, you know, that has such a devastating impact on a person's brain actually that it has been upped a bit um and that makes it more critical for people um to realize that that's um a really dangerous thing that can happen and not just oh he put his hands on her neck and that's that's no big deal well and i think doesn't strangulation like a previous um incident of strangulation indicate a higher rate of death for that yeah well, and also in brain injury, if because, you know, I mean, I used to tell the guys when they would complain about this, why this is happening. It's like, let's not put our hands on our neck and let's just begin to see where are these places that feel kind of vulnerable. And if you and it's it's the lack, it's the blocking of oxygen to the brain that causes the brain injury. So, yeah, you think it's just like I'm going to, you know, and not not that you maybe intend to kill her with this action, but that there still has an impact. And there's been a lot more um, research recently, uh, particularly out of some of the programs, there's a program in, in Ohio that's been doing research on, on head injury and brain injury and domestic violence. And for many years, I don't think we recognized um, the kind of injury. And usually it's in some, it's not just somebody, you know, slamming your head against the wall. Repeated actions, particularly around strangulation, and to explain to the women without freaking them out, which is a little bit scary, but they're already feeling the impact of that. So, you know, in some ways, in these cases, you know, to determine, uh, to have the lawmakers and the courts determine how dangerous this person is or the how much this has been an injury is to also to document those kinds of injuries, which may not show up on the first day, but they may be, you know, the headaches and the confusion and the ability and then really the, the long-term impact of trauma on a person's life. And we're learning more and more and more about that. And the ability for society began to take into consideration, the, including the fact that many of the men that were arrested for domestic violence, who were in my offender group, had trauma histories. And they had huge trauma histories. They weren't just, you know, they were child, they were abused as children. You go to any men's prison right now or women's prison in this country yeah. and you ask these, you ask them what their history was, they will tell you that so that it's sort of like they're the, that the, the last stop of people um, who've had these kind of injuries who've not been able to get resolution and they will commit a crime or have a com crime committed upon them. And this is the, this is the way, and then their children. So, and, and I was saying this before that, you know, there's not, I don't know if there's a research on this, but in my experience that working with victims is that if you are, if you've witnessed this kind of violence, whether it's, you know, interpersonal violence, your parents, uh, child abuse, um, you're more likely to become an abuser yourself or to become a victim. So you've, you, you are role modeling what you see. And for many of the men that I worked with, their ability to say, I know how to resolve an issue without getting angry or getting violent was that I don't know how to do that because I don't have any, nobody I ever known who's done that. 
My father didn't do it. My stepfather didn't do it. My grandfather didn't do it. My mother didn't do it. So, you know, that we don't role model and that we don't have that as a, you know, we have more people today who yeah, get right. upset and they go take a gun and shoot people in a grocery store. So we still haven't figured out how to put that out. Not that we don't know that as human beings mm -hmm. and we have the instinct to be, to self pervert, you know, self, to do self-preservation and to not harm another person, but we don't always have control of our emotions um, or the situation. I've noticed in, in the research that I've been doing and looking at is that both homeless and offenders in prisons are more likely to have um, a traumatic brain injury yep. in their past. And I think we're still figuring out what that, all the things that a traumatic brain injury can yep. do yep. to our brains. Um, and so I think the domestic violence issue, it's it's so much deeper than just what is happening in the house when the victim is being hit. There's or 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 not hit, but the but the tension is there and the idea that it could blow, but that 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 control and that abusive behavior and the language and the insults and the putting down and the, you know, you know, you are not as good as me and here's how I'm going to show it to you. And, you know, and, and then there's some personality defects that are not necessarily changeable, right. um, particularly around about narcissistic behavior. So these are, these are all factors. And here's this, this victim who's trying to figure out a, how to stay safe, how to keep the children safe and, you know, is there a possibility of me leaving? Will the police, you know, um, support me? Will I be able to find a place to live? Um, and we found in COVID time, you know, here in the state that I live in, the in March of 2020, which was the week that we shut down um, everything, our shelters were already full for domestic violence. We didn't have any room in the inn. Um, in March of 2020, and so for the next what year and a half now, we're into three years, um, we have had to contend. So we can't build enough shelters um, to to you know we should have adequacy and and that many people who are homeless, particularly women, are domestic violence victims. Right. Um, so it's not like there's a correlation, and we shouldn't try to attack the problem. But there's a much bigger solution to this, and that um, we can't. We can't solve it by just finding those services. And I think that's what's um, why there's been a lot of emphasis. And I know the women that I've worked with and coming through my workshop, they all have a goal at the end of the workshop to work on either a goal they came in with or one that they wanted to work on and have more positive energy about. A lot of it's around financial abuse issues. A lot of it's about money, the, the ability to stay out, not just to go back to the original relationship, which they probably don't want to do, but to not go into another relationship just because of, you know, the, the need to get emotional um, and financial help. So the idea that we really haven't solved this problem is hitting on other kinds of issues. And I think the financial piece is becoming clearer and clearer that, that we need banks to step up. We need uh, financial institutions to step up and to not just say to these women, you know, you don't have a great credit history because, you know, he took the credit cards and made mess of them. And you don't have a work history because he never lets you work. Sorry, we can't give you a car loan, which will allow you to go and get a, get a job and put yourself. So these are all connected things 
that I think um, that more of society has to take, you know, not responsibility for, but take recognition Action. of and to, yeah. and, to, and to realize that these are the trauma histories that we all have. You're right. There's, you know, and you can describe it as, you know, the worst trauma that ever happened to you may not be somebody else's trauma, but there's an impact. It's an emotional impact. And I think when we start to compare our trauma to someone else's trauma mm -hmm. or it wasn't as bad for me as it was for you. So I should just, I should be fine and I should get over it. Right. Or, or that, or that, you know, this, this happened to me, but it's because I didn't do this thing over here. One of the things that I was very clear about when I started doing the workshops, two things, one is that I would do this two day workshop. That's now, I now do it virtually. This is one of the opportunities in COVID yeah. is that they would come, they'd come to the workshop, come to both sessions of the workshop. And then I would invite them to a follow-up program. So we'd have a community, but in that workshop and every time that we meet as a group, we don't tell our stories. Um, there's some of the women that, uh, as long I make sure they're safe, you know, they're out or they're through the crisis of a sexual assault or they have resources. They know where the domestic violence, sexual assault crisis programs are. They may still be in a support group there. They have a therapist, they have somebody to work with, but we don't tell the story. So that means that you don't walk in, first of all, I'll trigger in a minute. Um, we don't all trigger. We don't just end up crying because it's so sad. But we begin to talk about the next story. And I say to these women, I will tell you that many people, when they meet you and find out that you're a survivor of domestic violence or sexual assault or child abuse, they may want to know your story about what happened to you and how terrible it was. But what they really want to know is how did you move out of there and how did you become a thriver? Because that, that will be of value to them. And that's where the women that have gone through your program can model that mm -hmm. for their children, for yep. other women in the program, especially in that aftercare piece that you yeah. talked about. Yeah, um, yeah. And in fact, I, I uh, because I've had these women in my group for 15, 20, and they come in and out, depends, some of them moved out of state and whatever, but, but now they're on virtual, which is great. But I also get the chance to see their children grow up. And actually the children, we have a couple of events over the years where the children do interact. And the kids like to interact because they kind of know that that kid over there has a similar story to them. Right. They're not going to ask them for it, but they know that kid understands um, in, that, in, that, in that community. And to watch those kids grow up and not become a victim or or a perpetrator uh, um, is really important. And what's you know the kind of support and that really would be that's generational changing and that's the ability to see that you can break that cycle. And for many of the women I've worked with and also the men I've worked with, they want to break that. They can see the cycle for God's sake. They can see it in the, in their own lives with their parents and grandparents, and they can see it with their children. You know, they can see where the you know the the one of the kids beat, you know hits the other kid over the right. head. You know, and what's the lesson they learned? That's okay to do that. Or how do you then, you know, sit them down and say, you know, I know you're mad at your sister, but you don't have to hit her in the head, you know, kind of thing. So I think that's the, that is the way that this becomes a bigger and bigger and more long lasting process. And I think that's what families really want to do. Nobody wants to live like this. Um, and certainly not the children to see your children move through. And when I've done some work in prisons, that's what you see. You see you know, not to justify the behavior, the violent behavior that got them there, but they'll tell you stories about, you know, child abuse and 
you know, seeing their mother, you know, shot in front of them by their father when they were four years old. I mean, it's just, it's all the, all the social problems are sitting there in prison, except now these men and these women can't get out. Um, So this is a huge, you know, societal issue, a criminal justice issue, a financial issue. Um, But as, you know, as we've been talking, communication seems to be kind of at the core of a lot of this, including, right, the moving from moving out of a violent relationship. And even if you stay in that relationship, learning how to communicate and also, um, you know, moving from that survivor to thriver, learning how to communicate what you need, learning how to talk to that inner smaller piece of yourself that you've hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So communication is, sounds like is a really important piece to shifting um, right. generational and, piece. Right. I also think it's a lot about self-care, learning how to take care of yourself um, and recognizing that there's a part, you know, the part of you that has been, been untouched. And that's a part of you that has dreams and aspirations. And if you, you know, in not only in a relationship, but in a family, how to encourage that, how to, how to move that forward so everybody has that opportunity. I think that's what's really missing a lot with the women that I've worked with, because they'll talk about that as children, or they'll talk about how they want their kids to have that opportunity and, and what it would mean to, um, to be able or to see their kids really move, move through it. I don't think we've talked enough about that kind of, you know, where, where people can go, um, you know, it's my happy ending story, but it's also, you know, right. something good coming out of bad. There's some, there's some moment of, um, it's, it's the human experience. We all want to have a human experience. And I don't think we've given that enough, um, enough emphasis in our society. Like I said, I think COVID gave people a lot more of that because it became right in front of your face. Um, this person is no longer with us because of what, what's happening in the world. But I think we haven't learned yet how it is that um, relationships should work, how it is a give and take, and we don't teach that to our kids. And and you know, in many cases, some of the um, the kids that well, for, for example, when I was doing the offender group, it was interesting. The guys would come in and say that their kids were giving them like lectures about how they should stop doing verbal abuse with their mother. And they're like, how did they know that? Like, how did they have that word? Well, it's because of the bullying curriculums that have been going on in the schools. And so the kids have started to identify. They're starting to get some language, some some ability to understand what the warning signs are. And then they, you know, because kids are smart, they figure this out. So they start to transfer to, okay, so maybe that shouldn't happen to me as a kid in a school. Maybe mommy shouldn't be doing that to daddy or vice versa. Um, so I think a lot in, in that's why the warning signs are really important. And I have those on my website there, you know, there's there, that information is available. And sometimes even having those words will give you the sense that, um, that you might be in more danger than you think you are. And also to be able to be more articulate. I don't think that my niece didn't understand what was going on, but she missed a couple of the warning signs and mostly because he had never physically assaulted her. And she thought she could handle it all by herself. And she thought that the school she was going to was not going to take it seriously because there wasn't physical violence. I don't know if that was true, but she that was and she was a bright young woman. So so I think that kind of education 
is across the board, but then it has such great significance when you get to your own personal relationships as you, as you're an adult. No, I, I think it's, I love that my happy ending story Mm -hmm. piece like Mm -hmm. that. I don't, I think you're right. We don't see a lot of women who have survived domestic violence and then we see that them thriving on the other side. Right. And I, you know, I don't think that they, I think they do exist. I do too. There's still, there's still a stigma to saying that about yourself. I mean, there are people out there like Oprah who will talk about being an incest survivor and, and she, you know, and she not only would give her own story, but when she was running her, her TV show, she always brought people on who told that transformational story. So I think, you know, it's the hero's journey, you know, with bad things happen, but, but I don't think that we give that story, that sort of that pattern out enough to be able to see that people can fit it together. And the other thing I've been working a lot on with particularly women and how we're, how we're socialized is to ask for help. Um, I, I know I don't always ask for help. Uh, I've gotten better at it. You know, asking for help today. Okay. Um, and you know, that there are people that want to help. And I said, you know, wouldn't, isn't it true that when, somebody asks you for help, you will go and do anything for that person, even if you don't know them very well, you know? Um, So why do you think that they wouldn't do that for you? So the idea that we are all in this together and that we share this journey and many people will recognize it without not a whole lot of information. Um, So I think that's sort of that, once again, in COVID time, I think we got a lot more feeling about not only what was happening in our in our families, but in our communities and our churches and right. our in our neighborhoods and the number of people that were suffering or had a traumatic impact. So maybe that will help us be, as they say, more trauma informed. But I really think it's being more human, for God's sake. I, um, and I think that that can be hard. Um, you know, I you talked about that that asking for help and and that's something that I've struggled with. And one of my um, my good friends. Uh, she was like, well, do you need help with that? And I was like, oh, I've got it. And I, it'll be okay. I, I could do it all on my own. And she was like, well, I'm, I'm really, I'm offering to help you. And I was like, oh, I don't mm-hmm. want to put you out. And she was like, I mean, if I came to you and asked for the same thing, would you do this for me? And I said, well, of course I would. And she said, because it feels good. Like you like helping. Right, right. I was That's like, right. yeah, I do. And she was like, so why are you taking that, that joy and that good feeling right. away from me? Right. That's right. That's exactly, it's like, exactly oh, true. I, and, I like that. And, that, and that concept I think is particularly, although men have the thing about if I ask for help that I'm weak kind of thing, that's how they're socialized, unfortunately. Right. But I do think that's changing a lot. And I also think that men um, are, are in more young men recently, particularly fathers, I think they're much more into the nurturing role. I see a lot mm-hmm. more young men with their children who are just, really into it it's great um and so that that nurturing role isn't considered outside of the the man box you know that men can be nurturing and and it feels good they want to have connection to people they want to have connections to their kids so to not put that into yeah there's some men that may not want to do that that's just not manly but you know i don't think that's the that needs to be the rule i think there could be exceptions both ways and i think opening up those roles is so that's the thing i learned most about when I was doing offender groups is how strong that socialization is. And particularly my generation, it was really, really, uh, I grew up in the 1950s. So I was, 
I was taught that this, you know, women sublimate themselves to men in the 1950s. And then I was a teenager in the 1960s and 70s where everything just went up in the air. So, you know, I kind of like have a foot in both worlds so I can see, you know, how I had to process it through. But I think we're breaking down some of those those guidelines, Slowly. but there's still a lot of cultural and religious and whatever kinds of constrictions yeah. that people, which may not be bad things, but when they move to that place where you start to move out of, you move into a role that's really not productive. And um, like I said to the guys, you know, you want to have a nice relationship. You want to be loved. It's not going to be through controlling behavior. Um, and you don't even, you don't even necessarily, if that happened to you, you wouldn't feel comfortable about that. So I think those are changing mores, but there's still a lot of people that are caught in this, in this thing. And I think learning that journey is the first thing, you know, even if there's something bad that's happened to you, can you move through it and feel like you're, um, going to be a thriver? And so with it. Anyone who is listening to this can go to your website, which is thriverzone.com. Yeah. You said that you have resources there, more yeah. information to see right. what some of the signs are of an abusive relationship. Right. Um, right. And if you need help, uh, there are resources there to, to help right. you. The find one that's really critical, particularly in domestic violence, is the domestic violence hotline. It's a national hotline. They have resources. It's if you Google uh, domestic violence hotline, national domestic violence hotline, it'll come up. There's also one for sexual assault. So those are the kind of resources that are that particularly in immediate problems, they can there are domestic violence uh, programs around the country, shelters. You don't have to go into the shelter. But if you do, that's probably, there's free, it's, they're all free services. They're also sexual assault. These are all, this is what we've managed to do in the last uh, 40 years. But it's not totally adequate, but at least there's the resources. Uh, and I do, I my workshops are now free. Uh, they, they've always been free. They're now virtual. So uh, if you're a survivor of domestic violence or sexual assault or some combination, whatever, um, you can go onto the, my website under the workshops and sign up for them. I do them four times a year. I've been doing some train the trainer for people that are interested oh, awesome. in my program. And I also have um, an ongoing program that I've been working and my books also have a lot of my material. The novels that I've written loosely based on my niece's story have been interesting to sort of talk about um, the impact uh, of a trauma like that on a family and friends and college and how it sort of spins out over a number of years. So uh, I'm a writer. So what can I say? I, that? Yes, I, I want to be a writer. Right. However the materials come to you, um, there's a lot there's a lot out there. It's just, what was the thing? Ask for help kind of thing? Yeah. Right. And, and help is out there. Um, yes. So I will, in the show notes, I will link um, the domestic violence hotline website mm -hmm. and phone number, as well as the one for sexual assault um, and Susan's uh, website, as well as a link to where you can find her books. Um, th Susan, thank you so much for joining me thank and you. sharing lots of information about how uh, domestic violence is experienced in our world and, and how it's so much more than just that idea of a woman being punched um, right. by right. her angry husband. Um, right. And so with that, we've reached the end of today's episode. And thank you so much for listening and learning more about how mental health and society meet. 
Now go out and open a conversation and discover how mental health is experienced in your world. You can find more episodes of the Mental Society where you find your favorite podcast. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on anything. You can find other resources, um, additional articles, and um, more information than you probably ever wanted to know about mental health by visiting our website, thementalsociety.com. And remember that you are not alone in your struggles. Hope and help are all around you. And until next time, this is Amanda Dolan wishing you good health, mental and otherwise.